All right, folks, it is time for us to get going. Thank you for those that are here with us. Thanks for those that are joining us on one of our streaming platforms. And we're going to get started here in just a minute. Let me remind you um, the in-person crowd's a little chatty tonight. It's okay. Spring is here, you know, and everybody's got a little more pep in their step. It's still daylight outside. All right. They really are just going to keep going, aren't they? You're going to have to go get him, Debbie. <laughs> All right. So let me, uh, let me tell you a couple of things before we pray and get started tonight. First, I, I went into this last week, but I'm going to remind you this week and next week. Um, we will stop our live stream. For those that are joining us online, we will stop the live stream of Equip uh, after next week. So this week and next week will be our last two live streams for Wednesday Night Equip. We will continue to podcast it. For those of you that are listening to this later uh, through our website or uh, one of the places, I don't even know all the places where you can go download the, this, our Equip podcast. There's a lot of them, uh, apparently. Uh, but we will keep doing that, but we're moving Equip in back into the Fellowship Hall after two years. Uh, we're moving it back into the Fellowship Hall because tables are far more conducive for what we try to accomplish uh, in Equip than just somebody sitting up here. And so we've done this out of necessity, but it's time to move back. <clears throat> when we do move back on March the 30th, um, besides that being my 42nd birthday, that's the day that we're going to move back into. I always feel like I'm at church on my birthday. I don't know. I know your birthday's supposed to change every year. I always feel like it's a Sunday or a Wednesday. I don't know. Um, but besides moving back in the fellowship hall, that is when spring equip will start. And our, our new uh, adult discipleship and outreach, Pastor Jay, is going to be taking over from me, teaching equip uh, this spring. He's going to be teaching through some material that the North American Mission Board uh, published uh, that is about helping find your place in the mission of God. I'm really excited about this. The more we've looked into this uh, material, the more excited we get about Jay being able to do this. Uh, it's about a three-month uh, process, so it'll take us through the first part of the summer before we break for some fellowship time uh, in the summer. Uh, but it's interactive, and it, it gives you, it's going to give you the opportunity to talk with each other at the table, to be able to discover some things about yourself and about our congregation and about how you fit within what God is doing here as we make disciples together. And I'm going to go upstairs, and in, in uh, the absence of a student pastor here, I'm going to spend some time with our teenagers on Wednesday nights. Uh, as we uh, search for a new pastor for Next Gen Ministries at our church, and Jay's going to take over for me. So all of that happens, not next week, but the week after that, and uh, maybe next Wednesday night, uh, I'll let him, I'll have him come up and give just a brief preview of that. Uh, on this Sunday, there'll be some information in your connector. There'll be actually an insert, a, a whole page dedicated to uh, this, uh, to Spring Equip. And how you can have access to the material beforehand. There's going to be both printed and digital versions of the material. Uh, and an online discussion forum. A place where you can actually interact with one another and interact with Jay and what's going on in the material throughout the week. So just some really, some really cool stuff that we're going to try to integrate into Equip starting on March the 30th. So I have, I have this week and then one more week in our Five Solas series. Then we'll move into that. 
Uh, before we take uh, time to pray together, I know many of you pick up our prayer list and um, I encourage you to do that, that we put out on Wednesday nights. Uh, but there's one specific thing that I want to tell you about because we've been praying about it for a long time and uh, had kind of a false start on it earlier and actually had some people in our church uh, contribute uh, to, to seeing this done. So through our partnership with, on the Eastern Shore, where we've worked for many years uh, with Marissa, who is a, a missionary there working with migrant workers uh, along the Eastern Shore. And we have, prior to COVID, we're sending several teams a year to work with her and, and are very hopeful that now uh, things are looking better and we're going to be able to uh, be able to do that as she continue, even though she continues to, to deal with some health concerns that are limiting her ministry at the moment. But we, we asked her, I think the last time we actually had Marissa here, which would have been maybe uh, two praise and go Sundays ago, we've been a couple of years ago now, she shared with you about a, a pastor's wife on the Eastern Shore, small church pastor's wife named Dahlia, who um, needed a kidney transplant, was undergoing um, regular uh, treatment for dialysis, for um, kidney failure, and was on the list for um, a, a kidney transplant and um, that because the, the family didn't have insurance, they were raising money and we had families in our church give money that we've kept here this whole time waiting for this to happen. A couple of months ago, they got word that Dahlia would, 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 was ready to get the kidney. They had the kidneys. They drove to Charlottesville at the hospital where they were going to do the surgery and they did a COVID test and found out she had COVID and they sent her home, which has got to be the most depressing thing like I've ever heard, Right. You wait that long and then, and then something like that keeps you from getting it. And so that was really disappointing news. Well, this last weekend, uh, they got the call that the kidney was, uh, another kidney was there that matched her and uh, they were able to do the surgery this time. And Roger stayed in touch, uh, Roger Watts and Roger and Sandra who lead our Eastern Shore ministry have been able to stay in touch. Um, with our folks on the Eastern Shore and been able to get updates. She had a little bit of a complication this week um, that uh, they had to go back in and do a little bit of surgery for, but the kidney is functioning and um, that part is doing well. So we wanna ask you to keep praying for her as she'll have a long recovery ahead. But uh, that's something that has been in our prayer guide for quite a long time and been something that was highlighted as a part of our, our Eastern Shore partnership. And so we always like to celebrate when God answers prayer. And so this is one the, the Lord has, has answered. And so we wanna ask you though, uh, don't stop praying for her. Don't stop praying for Marissa as she continues to battle some, some health concerns. And, and don't stop praying for the workers on the Eastern Shore uh, and our opportunity, hopefully, that the Lord would provide new opportunities for us to go uh, and, and to work there, right? And so I want to pray for that as we, uh, as we begin uh, our night together. So let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, that you do hear our prayer. Thank you, God, that uh, you are not impersonal. Even as we'll turn our attention to the glory of God tonight, uh, we can see all throughout Scripture how your glory is manifested for our own eyes, that we can see it. And one of the ways, God, that we see your glory on display is when you answer the prayers of your people. So, God, thank you that even uh, in your glory, you hear uh, us and choose to work within our world. And so, God, we thank you that you've heard the prayer of your saints for uh, our sister in Christ who's waited all this time. We thank you, God, that the surgery was successful. We pray that it would continue to be so. Uh, we pray, God, for others who work along uh, the Eastern Shore as a part of that partnership. 
And God, that is uh, the last place that we've been able to restore uh, work, at least boots on the ground from our church, um, proclaiming the gospel there uh, after COVID. So we pray, God, that this summer that would open back up to us, that you would uh, help Marissa, you would you would be able to uh, heal her, be able to uh, get her back to full strength uh, so that she will be able to do the ministry that you've called her to, the ministry that she so greatly loves, and that we would be able to come alongside of her in ministering to and proclaiming the gospel uh, amongst the uh, the workers there on the Eastern Shore. God, would you bless our time tonight? Help us as we uh, approach a subject like the glory of God uh, and that not only in salvation, but all things, all creation exists uh, for the glory of God alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the last of the five solas that we will talk about. Next week, we will go back and uh, pick up a little bit of what I had to leave off last week. There were a couple of things I wanted to talk about last week that I had to leave off. I'm going to pick them up next week uh, as, we, as we kind of return to the idea of uh, in Christ alone and for the glory of God alone and, and answering more questions along the lines of why does that matter today? More of the, the current uh, situation. I'll start with a little bit about the... Um, about the Reformation period, but there are some distinct challenges, particularly as it relates to salvation being in Christ alone and what the atonement, the death of Jesus on the cross in our place, uh, how, how um, modern thinking of uh, that doctrine has, has gone through significant challenges in the last, I don't know, century or so. And, uh, and I want to be able to deal with that some next week as well as a couple of issues surrounding uh, the glory of God. Uh, but I, we want to spend some time thinking about the, the doctrine, really doctrines that are, that are related to um, the, the fifth sola. So if we were to go through the solas again, just to remind you, really the first one is where we, get, is where we glean the information, that our, that our belief is going to be grounded in the scriptures alone, that we are going to go to God's word alone as the authority for all matters about God, about our access to him in salvation and in our obedience to him uh, as, as his church, right? And then the other three, the next three, related to one another uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, that uh, it is not by merit that we have experienced salvation, that it is not by works that we earn our salvation, and it is in no one else's sacrifice and no other belief than in Jesus alone, dying in our place so that we might live where we left off uh, last week. And so that is really the, 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 the first one speaking to where we get this information, the other three speaking to how salvation is accomplished on our behalf, that it is by the grace of God through faith, which is a gift of God, and then in Jesus, which is the, the atoning sacrifice in our place. The final one is that it is for the glory of God alone. And this may seem like something that is somewhat disconnected from the others, because particularly those middle three speaking about salvation. Uh, but here's the question that we seek to answer tonight. Why does all of this, and when I say this, I don't mean just what I described here, but, but all of this, why does all of this exist? Why does all of this matter? Why is there a universe 
Why is there a world populated with life and intelligent life? Uh, why why have, do we have the story of redemption that God is telling in his word to us? Why would God choose to save sinners? Why would God choose to send his son to die in our place so that sinners may find life? Why is God redeeming a people? When I'm asked, what is the story of scripture, this is always the way that I ask, that God, I answer it, that God is redeeming a people for his glory. Why? Have you ever stopped to answer that question, just to think about that for a moment? Why, is, why am I here? Right? That's kind of the big question of, of humanity, right? Every, you know, even uh, secular philosophers will say this is the big question. Uh, for all of uh, for all of humankind, why are we here? Well, the, the the Westminster Catechism tells us that we exist for the glory of God, right? That this that this is the the chief end of man, right? That the answer to the question that every religion is seeking to answer, that every philosopher is seeking to determine, um, that every person laying awake at night asking some of these why questions, that the answer ultimately comes back to God. God in his glory. That while even though we may not see it in the moment, and sometimes it can be hard to see in the moment, I will give you that. When we're faced with evil in our world, when we're faced with personal evils that we commit, personal evils that others commit against us, and we start asking questions like, why does God allow this to happen? And why would, why would, this be, why would it be this way in our world? I, I can readily admit that it can at times be difficult for us in our fallen state and in the fallen condition of our world to, to recognize that all of this exists because it brings glory to God. That's the ultimate answer. Now, there's certainly a lot of nuance there and we're going to go through some of it today because all, uh, focusing on different aspects of our world and ultimately focusing on salvation itself uh, provide some of these answers from Scripture for us. But that really is the answer that we, to, to the big question that we seek. Why am I here? Why are we here? Why does all of this exist? It exists solely for the glory of God, the one who created it all. So before we get to the glory of God in salvation, I think it's helpful to do a little bit of a walk through Scripture and see how God's glory is manifested apart from salvation. Because by doing so, then we can integrate that into some of the things that we have seen to be true in these previous solas that we've looked at as a part of this study. So let's start here. And that is, when we think about the glory of God, we have to think about it as being something that God already possesses not as something that we give to him. Now we do, from one perspective, often speak about giving glory to God. And truthfully, over the course of the next 45 minutes, I'm gonna use that phrase at least a few times, right? That we give glory to God. 
But whether we give glory to God in a temporal sense does not affect the fact that God has glory in an eternal sense. Meaning you may choose to worship God today with your life. Someone else may choose to worship God and to bring glory to his name and to glorify him in their life today or not. And it doesn't one fraction change the amount of glory that God actually possesses. The glory that God possesses in his person, he has possessed for eternity. And when I say for eternity, I don't mean going back to Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I mean going back before time, space, and matter existed. What we confess to be true is that God existed when there was nothing and that God existed outside of what we understand, our understanding of time, space, and matter. And in that moment, God was equally glorified as he is now and as he will always be. Glory belongs to him. This is why in Isaiah 48, 11, we read, this is the word of the Lord, right? The Lord is speaking here through his prophet and says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. He's talking about his, his patience with Israel here and, and this, their part of the redemptive story that is, that is unfolding as God is going to judge Israel exile Israel, ultimately return Israel to the promised land. For my own sake, I do it, God said. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Now, what were the, what were the Israelites doing when Isaiah was proclaiming judgment from the Lord? They were worshiping false idols. They had embraced the false idol worship of the surrounding nations. They had uh, at times in Israel's history, even profaned the temple of God by uh, setting up false idol worship in his temple. They had erected the high places around Israel where they would go and worship, worship the false gods of the surrounding people. And he asks this question, should my name be proclaimed? And notice how he answers the question, my glory I will not give to another. Who does the glory belong to? It belongs to God and God alone. It is his. And this is why he says, I will not share it. I'm not going to share my glory amongst my people with false gods, with the idols of the nations. I will not give my glory. So from the outset, we have to recognize that God, that glory belongs to God, whether we recognize it or not. So our world, meaning the people in our world, don't have to glorify God for God to be glorified. Now, God calls us to glorify him, but make no mistake, the glory that God has is his. Second is the glory of God is declared in his creation, that this is the purpose of the universe. And not just, by the way, this little corner of it, but all of it. And the more... <laughs> The, the more the universe, our understanding of the universe expands, the more incredible it becomes. And the more incredible it becomes, the more it speaks to just how much glory God has from his creation. 
Psalm 19.1 begins with the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. So you can imagine someone in antiquity looking up at the stars and saying, wow, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then today I saw a high definition panoramic image from Mars. And I thought, the heavens declare the glory of God. That that rover that's on Mars sending back high definition, full color, panoramic images don't declare the glory of man. Even though, yes, man in in a short period, I just think like a hundred years ago, the airplanes that we were were flying were like bi-wing airplanes with one, maybe two guys in them. And now we're putting high definition panoramic cameras on a whole nother planet. Like that's, that's a pretty incredible leap in a hundred years. And while there may be some that think that speaks to the glory of the human race, it does not at all. All that shows us is just how incredible God is. So every time they expand our understanding, science expands our understanding of the universe to include billions of of galaxies, each containing trillions of stars with trillions of planets going around them. I think, man, isn't God just glorious? Because that's what it is intended to do. God's creation declares his glory. And it was created to do that from that, might, from that macro level that all of the universe declares the glory of God, the heavens declare the glory of God, down to the, to the earth level, in his creation, that when God created the heavens and the earth and he proclaimed them to be good, for God to proclaim something to be good means that it is giving him glory. It is doing what it was created to do. And up until the fall of mankind, when sin entered this world, the earth and all of its inhabitants, the creation of God did so perfectly that it was created exactly as God had intended it and it was doing exactly what God intended it to do, give him glory. So all of this exists to declare the glory of God. All of it is intended to point us towards him. Then when we start walking through scripture, what we begin to see in the story of scripture is that God's glory is um, is shown to us in various ways, and this isn't all of the glory of God, but but God begins to manifest his glory in a way that his people can see it. And this shows up in a couple of different ways, both in the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the most common way that the glory of God shows up, as in like people can actually see it. Now think for a minute that glory is something that is inherent to God. He owns it. And so when, when, the, when, when the biblical authors tell us that people actually see the glory of God, what, what the biblical authors are telling us is that God is manifesting himself in some type of way that, that can visually be perceived by the creation. So it's not as if God's glory is, is only or merely something that people can see, but it is something that God manifests so that we can see it. Now, what's the most common way that God manifested his glory in the Old Testament? It's the image of a cloud. 
this, this all-encompassing cloud, and we start to see this in Exodus 13, as God is leading his people out of captivity in uh, Egypt towards the promised land, God manifests his glory in the midst of his people in the form of cloud by day and fire by night, right? In Exodus 13, 21, we read, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. So the glory of God is guiding his people. We might say, well, how do we know that's the glory of God? Well, in a minute, we're gonna show you what happens with that cloud that leads us to, to assume this is the glory of God all along. You don't get that right away, but that's the way revelation works in the Bible is, and when I say revelation, by the way, I'm not talking about the book of revelation in the Bible. I'm talking about special revelation as in God is revealing himself progressively uh, to his people. And, and as, we, as we read scripture, what we get to later then goes back and informs what we've read before. And so I'm going to show you where it, it's informing this, but just take my word for it for a minute, that this is what God's doing, is God is showing his glory, at least a glimpse of it, an image of it, to his people in how he is guiding them out of captivity into the promised land. And this is an image uh, for us. This is an image for the people of God even still today and becomes an image for the people of God throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament and carries on into the church age as God is, is for his glory leading people from captivity, see sin, into the promised land, see salvation, right? And what is it they are following? They are following the glory of God. He is guiding them along the way. He is... We, we refer to this, you've probably heard this term before, the Shekinah glory of God. That word Shekinah means to dwell. It's speaking of the presence of God. And this is like that first image amongst the people of God, Old Testament Israelites here in this, in this, at this time, that was the people of God, and God is guiding them through His through His cloud by day, fire by night, fire by night, as He dwells amongst them. Then we get to the we get towards the end of Exodus and Exodus chapter forty, and something happens then with that cloud. Listen to this in Exodus forty. Then the cloud, all right, this is that presence of God. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, before I go on reading, so the cloud from before, this is the cloud that's been leading them, right? And the tent of meeting uh, is, is the tabernacle. God's given them instructions to build a mobile house of worship that ultimately gets replaced uh, hundreds of years later uh, by the temple, by Solomon. But in this moment, it's, this, is, this is the temple of God at, at, amongst the people. It was just called a tabernacle because it was mobile, okay? And the, what happens? The, the cloud covers that and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle. So that cloud is now called the glory of the Lord. And it's been the glory of the Lord the whole time. <laughs> it was the glory of the Lord guiding them. And now it's the glory of the Lord filled in the tabernacle. Verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we're told twice, 
The cloud is representing the glory of the Lord. It's this visible manifestation of God's glory amongst his people. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That that this is what this cloud represented. It represented the glory of the Lord. And the people were called to follow God's glory during the time of the Exodus. Now we're gonna read this, but eventually Elijah sees a vision Prophesying about the same thing that Isaiah was prophesying about, but just looking at a different aspect of it. Elijah sees a vision of the cloud leaving the temple to say God has left his people. So for all of this time, and, and right from the time that they built the tabernacle to the time of, um, of, of uh, Ezekiel, you're, you're talking about a thousand years? And, and it's not that that cloud stayed that whole time, but that same image has stayed with the people for all that time to, to the point where Ezekiel sees it leaving the temple. Then we get to the New Testament and the, the image changes just a little bit. It changes, from, uh, it changes from cloud to light. So there's been this period of, of darkness, you could say, right? The, this intertestamental period between the time where uh, Ezra rebuilds the temple, Nehemiah re- rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem. That difficult period of time, I talked about Sunday morning, right? That, that uh, 62 week represented in Daniel 9 of, of the, the, the return from exile, even though it was with, uh, with turmoil. And there's this period where, where not, even though a lot is happening historically, it seems as if God is silent. And then this lowly group of shepherds sitting out in a field, we're told in Luke 2, keeping watch over their flock by night. In verse 9 of Luke 2, we read, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Then they were filled with great fear. So now it's not a cloud. Now it's this bright light that, that what the shepherds saw after generation of, and generation of people waiting on the presence of the Lord, these lowly shepherds waiting in a field see the glory of the Lord and it's shown all around them. Now, while they are seeing a different physical manifestation of the glory of God, what they are seeing is the same thing that the Old Testament Israelites saw. They are seeing God's glory. Later in Acts 7, Stephen is arrested for proclaiming the gospel. He becomes the, the first uh, martyr of the um, the first martyr of the, the New Testament. The uh, when we go to tour Israel, some of the people in here have been to Israel with me. When we go to tour Israel. Uh, the gate that we enter the old city from has several names. One of the names of that gate is Saint Stephen's Gate because that was the gate. Uh, historically that we're told Stephen was taken out of to be stoned to death. And what happens when he's being stoned to death outside of the city of Jerusalem? He looks up, we're told in Acts 7.55, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He gazes in heaven and this is what he said. Remember, God, God the Father is not, 
He's not time, space, matter, right? He is a he is a something completely and totally different. And what is it that Stephen sees? He sees the same thing that the Old Testament Israelites saw. He sees the same things that the shepherd in the field saw. We're not, the, the vision is not described for us here for Stephen, but this is what Stephen sees, the glory of God, the manifestation of God himself. The best way for us, though, to see the glory of God is to see it in the person of Jesus Christ. This, he is the glory of God. In John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John begins his gospel by insisting that we understand that the word, which John has already attested earlier in that passage, uh, is God became flesh, and by becoming flesh, we are able to see the glory of God. So when we look upon the person of Jesus, while we can't physically see the person of Jesus now, but when we look upon the person of Jesus in Scripture, what we are seeing is the glory of God. The, the disciples, or some of three of the disciples, see this on the Mount of Transfiguration. They, they, Jesus takes them up to uh, the top of the mountain, takes Peter, James, and John up to the top of the mountain, And Jesus is transfigured before them. And what do they see? They see the glory of God in Jesus. And it's so awesome that Peter's like, let's build some houses here and just live here. (laughs) And um, that wasn't the right answer to the question, Peter. But nonetheless, that was his thought and probably would have been a lot of our thoughts, right? As They're seeing this. The author of Hebrews affirms this same thing in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory, he being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the author of Hebrews describes what Stephen saw, the glory of God and Jesus sitting next to it, but recognizes truth in that Jesus is also the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God, that Jesus is God. So when we look at the person of Jesus, we see the glory of God. So this is from the Exodus through through the, the New Testament. God has manifested his glory in ways that his people can see, ultimately finding their yes in the person and work of Jesus. But for us to say that it is for the glory of God alone, we're not only talking about, the, in a general sense, the universe. We're not only talking about even a more specific yet still somewhat general sense, the earth and people. It's not only the answer to the question, why are we here? But it is also the answer to the very specific question of why would God choose to save sinners? Why would God choose to redeem a people for his pleasure? Why would God do this? I think that's a more important question than we sometimes want to give it uh, credit for. Think about this for a moment. All the way back in the beginning, God has created a universe that declares his glory at, at 
not at the physical center of that universe, but in the, in the metaphorical center of that universe is the world on which God will work, earth. And he creates life, carves out amongst that life a garden and places Adam and Eve in that garden. And everything is giving glory to him. And Adam and Eve tempted by the enemy sin, ushering in sin and death and destruction into our world. It would have been not only excusable, but good and right, you could argue, for God in his perfection and in his glory and his holiness to say, that's it, I'm done. And for him to wipe the face of the earth clean and start over. It would have been good and right for God to do that. And yet God did not do that. God chose to do something else. He chose to, even though we are sinners, which he knew, again, let's, let's, put our, let's put this in the context of what we already know to be true. He knew that before the foundation of the world, his creation would sin. He not only knew that his creation would sin, he knew that I would sin and that you would sin. And yet he chose to make his creation anyway. He chose to make me and you anyway. He knew that before he created it, and yet he still did it. Why? Because by redeeming sinful people, by doing the, the work of redemption through, through, through the story of Scripture and, and all that it entails, the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the, the captivity of Israel, the, the exodus of Israel into the promised land, the, the rise and fall of that nation, ultimately the, the restoration, anticipating the, return, the, the coming of Jesus, the death of Jesus in our place, the resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel to the nations. All of this is God's plan to bring glory to himself. Now, we may not fully, I don't think we can in our limited understanding fully understand how it does that. But here's what we need to understand. It does it because scripture says that it does it. So every aspect of the redemptive history, and I don't have time to go through um, through every aspect of redemptive history, we're simply going to look at what we have been looking at in the context of this series um, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. But here's what we need to recognize, that, that every aspect of that brings glory to God. So God choosing to save sinners before the foundation of the earth brings glory to him. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, we read, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Now think about what Paul is connecting here. Paul's connecting a couple of very important truths that help us to see this. It is not by mistake that, that Paul is saying, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He is hearkening back to the very beginning. 
right? Let light shine out of darkness is looking back all the way into eternity past with the first words of God, let there be light. But then Paul makes this connection to our salvation. He has the one who said, let there be light, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this entire plan of God that spans not only to let there be light, but beyond let there be light, to before the foundation of the world, God choosing to save sinners is for the glory of God. So we talked some a couple of weeks ago about the doctrine of election and how the doctrine of election uh, precludes us from being able to say, I, I, have, I have been saved because of something good within me. It also precludes us from being able to say, God has saved me for myself. God's not saved me for myself. God saved me for him. God saved his people, his church. He has redeemed a people for his glory. The one who said, let light shine out of darkness has allowed us to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is for that reason. But also grace and faith are for the glory of God. We spent some time looking at Ephesians 2 when we were talking about grace and faith. We looked in detail at, in, at Ephesians 2, how Paul makes this argument that we are saved by grace, not of merit, by faith, not of works. He, then he summarizes that, right, in verse 8 of Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is a gift of God. We looked at that in detail a few weeks ago, but look, look at verse nine, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now let's stop for a minute and ask this question. What is boasting? Boasting, right? Is bragging. It's being proud of something. It's, and we all have boasted in some accomplishment or another, even if you, the most humble person in this room has boasted about something. You, you've been proud at some point in your life about something. And you know, that, that's not necessarily a a bad thing. Boasting has this con it has a negative connotation, certainly, which is right that they used this, but there's nothing wrong with being proud about an accomplishment, something that you've done and something that your children have done, something that your family has accomplished. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But boasting has this more negative connotation to it, right? Of of someone that, that that's bragging about something. And this is what Paul says gives the reason for. Salvation being by grace through faith is, is, is and not a result of work so that no one can boast. So no one can say, look what I did. Really, it's about, it's about removing us saying, removing the ability for us to say, look, this salvation is about me at all. By saying that it is so that no one can boast is to say that, great, that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone is ultimately for the glory of God. Because if we could do it on our own, then we would be able to take some of the credit for it. And unfortunately, I think there are sometimes Christians want to take some credit for it. And when we take credit away from God for something that is holy of him, what are we doing? We are, if it's possible, stealing the glory of God. 
we are at least stealing the temporal credit for what God has accomplished. And salvation is in its working in our lives for his glory alone. But it doesn't stop there. When I teach on um, our six core beliefs and I get to the core belief about salvation, one of our, which is our fourth core belief at our church, um, Salvation, when we talk about it as a belief of our church, it, it, I say that it is simultaneously past tense, present tense, and future tense. Most often when people talk about salvation, they only talk about salvation in the past tense. I was saved when, right? And you fill in the blank. It's how we all kind of begin our testimony, right? I was raised in a Christian home or I wasn't raised in a Christian home. We always feel like we ought to, we ought to caveat that for people. And then we're like, and then I was saved when I was 10, 12, 15, 30, whatever it is for you. And that, that's not a wrong statement to say I was saved because you understood the, the truth of the gospel and God by grace through faith brought you into his uh, saving light. He justified you, right? That is past tense. But salvation is not only past tense, it's also present tense, that we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we are being sanctified, made from one degree of glory into a, uh, to another into the image of Jesus, and that we will one day be glorified. And so the glory of God is equally manifested in our salvation and our glorification, not just our justification. It is not just the past tense of our salvation that brings glory to God, but it is also the present and future tense. So we stay in Ephesians 2, right? And you get to the very next, right? Paul's just made this argument for salvation being by grace through faith alone so that no one can boast, i.e. for the glory of God. And the very next line, he says, verse 9, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul switches gears here and begins to talk about sanctification, this process of doing good works. He's just said we're not saved by good works, but we do good works. So we can't boast in our good works. So if we can't boast in our good works to steal glory from God, then the good works that we do in sanctification are for what purpose? He says, because God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why would God prepare beforehand that we should walk in them? Because the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them bring glory to God. So even our sanctification, that process of putting off sin and putting on Christ where we progressively become more and more like Jesus is for God's glory. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 makes the argument that he says, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And by saying whatever you eat or drink, he's, he's tying together an argument about not being overly concerned about what you eat or drink. But what is food and what is drink if not just common things, common natural Right, things that we do. Everybody in this room likely has ate something today, eaten something today. Let me use proper grammar. Uh, everyone in this room has uh, drank something today, right? Because we do. That's part of life. And what does Paul say? Whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, just this all-encompassing statement, right? Whatever, you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
that the Christian life post-justification, which if you're still alive today and you are in Christ, then you are post-justification, but you are still being sanctified. We don't believe, according to Scripture, that any of us ever reach that accomplishment of being fully like Christ in this world. That happens after this life. And so everything that you do, you're doing for the glory of God, that you're living for the glory of God. So if you went to work today, you should have, as a follower of Jesus, gone to work for the glory of God. As you kept house, you know, went shopping, lived retirement, (laughs) whatever it is for you, went to school. You should have done so for the glory of God. And you say, well, pastor, that's really easy for you, right? I come to work and I work at a church and it's easy to see how maybe the work that I do is, is for the glory of God, even though it's very possible for me, to, for, for me to do it for the glory of me or for the glory of our church and not for the glory of God. But maybe you struggle to see how what you do is for the glory of God. But know this, it's supposed to be. All things, whatever you do, even down to things like eating or drinking, you should do it for the glory of God. And then when we proclaim the gospel, when we actually, in, in word and deed, tell people about the good news of Jesus, we are doing so for the glory of God. We're told to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So when we tell people about what Jesus has done for us and about what God is doing as he redeems a people for himself, what we are doing is we are declaring his glory to people. So not only our justification, but our obedience to him in in the process of sanctification is for his glory, but it is not ended there. Our glorification, that, that future tense of salvation, and yes, there is a future tense of salvation, that I will one day be saved. You say, wait, what do you mean I'll one day be saved? Well, do you still struggle with sin? Does death still await you at the end of this physical life? Yes, unless Christ returns before then. So we have not fully realized that which has been promised and sealed for us. First chapter of Ephesians, if you want to see about See what I mean there? That our salvation has been sealed for us. It has been promised for us. It is reality, but it is still not yet fully realized. But glorification is that final step. It is the final step in the application of God's salvation in our lives. It will happen when Christ returns and raises our bodies from the dead. The believers of all time before Christ, after Christ, all will be raised from the dead and reunited with their souls, which have gone on to be with him. Changes our bodies into everlasting bodies, resurrected bodies, just as his, Jesus, was the first fruits of that resurrection. Ours will be as well. And that glorification, that fully becoming like Jesus, where, where, where we are no longer perishable, but we are now imperishable, following in him who was the first fruits of the resurrection, that will glorify God for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes it like this. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam is Jesus. But it is not the spirit, uh, the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, that's Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, let me make this connection for you. When he says in verse 33, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. What is raised in glory is described to us in verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the perishable, the dishonor, we, also, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the glory that we experience in the afterlife, the glory that we experience in glorification is a glory that comes from Jesus. And what is Jesus? The personification of the glory of God, the manifestation of the glory of God. When we look at Jesus, we see God's glory and we will be glorified not because of anything we've done, not because of who we are, but because of what we have become in Jesus. So the question is not only what is all of this about? What is this universe about? Why does humans exist? The question expands when we have a right understanding of Scripture into what will the next life be about? And you want to know something? The answer is the exact same thing. God will raise our bodies from the dead, reuniting us with our eternal spirits, fully making us into the image of Jesus. And we will be raised in glory because we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Just as we bear the image of the man of dust, Adam, and all that has come with that, we will one day be like Jesus but being made like Jesus is not for our glory. It is for the glory of God. And it's not only us, but it is the creation itself. John describes the end in some magnificent language. And, you know, if, uh, if, you, if you thought preaching through these last little bits of Daniel have been interesting, wait till I get to do Revelation one day. It's not going to be anytime soon, okay? We're gonna, it's not. It's people ask me that all the time. We're going to preach Revelation. Like, first off, if I disappointed you with the end of Daniel 9 or confused you with the end of Daniel 9, yeah, that's probably going to happen too when we get to Revelation a little bit. But nonetheless, it, there's just, you ought to just read Revelation every now and then, not looking for, you know, signs of what's happening in the newspaper because I think that's just like a terrible way to read Revelation. But you ought to look at it. You ought to read it just for the, the, the display of God's glory because there, there, there are some themes that run throughout that book and one of them is just this awe-inspiring display of God's glory. And it culminates at, at the end. It culminates in Revelation 21 where Daniel sees coming out of heaven what he calls the, the holy city, Jerusalem. This is an image of new heaven and new earth, right? Listen to this. In Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11 first, it says, He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain 
and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. He goes on to describe in even more metaphorical language, this glorious city of God. Then in verse 22, he picks back up, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Did you notice the number of times the word glory appears there in those select passages from Revelation 21? The city has the glory of God. The kings of the earth bring their glory into it. The nations bring glory and honor into it. So what's being described there? Well, two things, creation and the people of God. Don't overcomplicate this, all right? When people are like, well, wait, it says detestable and false people won't enter it. So does that mean detestable and false people will be outside of it? Well, Yes, in the sense of heaven and hell, but no, not in the sense of earthly dwelling. John is giving us this image. And what John is saying is that when the people of God come into it, what they are bringing is the glory that God has given them. That the glory that God, in through salvation, has bestowed upon his people, they bring into this holy city that is what? Representing God. And what is happening in the midst of that city? There's no temple because there's God and there's the lamb, there's Jesus at his right hand. And the glory of God gives light. The nations walk by that light. His people walk by that light as they bring him glory. This is what's being described here is, is the eternal glory of God that is the culmination of the story that God is telling through his creation as he redeems a people for his glory. Make no mistake, the end of the Bible is is wrapping things up intentionally for us. What's the point? The glory of God. It's why it's repeated so often there. It's why the city is his glory. It's why his light, just like the cloud was God's presence in the Old Testament, far greater than that is the light that will be the glory of God in eternity. It's why this glory appears over and over again in the text for us so we can understand just just a glimpse in this temporal life what we will experience as we revel in the glory of God for all eternity. Not my glory, not your glory, not his church's glory, his glory. So none of this is about us. You're not the main character of the story. I say that all the time when we're talking about narratives in the scripture I'm always try to be really clear to say you know God is God's the main character here <laughs> God's the main actor he is but not only is he the main character the main actor he is the one that this whole story is ultimately about he's doing the work to redeem a people by grace through faith in Jesus alone for his 
glory for all eternity. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin, that you didn't just wipe us out in ages past, but you had a plan for your glory to redeem a people. And God, we should be awestruck that you've included us in that plan. And God, we should with awe and wonder look for the day that as you continue in this life to make us more and more into the image of Christ, that we will one day share in that glory as we will be like your son who was the first fruits of our resurrection. God, would you bring that day? We long to see your glory, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. So one week uh, left, we're gonna talk about the historical and modern significances uh, of and some challenges to uh, salvation by, uh, by Jesus alone and for the glory of God alone. Primarily in Jesus alone is gonna be where we focus a little bit on glory of God uh, next week as we wrap up this series and look forward to uh, spring equipped starting on the 30th. Thanks for being here. Thanks for those that join us uh, online. God bless you.